start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us this week is a voice that you're probably very familiar with without realizing it. It's Gabe Gentile who is a voice actor who provides a lot of the interesting station IDs that you hear on Krypton Radio. Oh, you flatter me. And our guest today is Dana Simpson, who is the... Hi. Hi. Welcome to the show. Now, um, for the listeners who aren't familiar with who are... Um, yes, they do exist. <laughs> they must be new. Hi, new oh, people. many people don't know who I am. My neighbors have no idea they live next to a celebrity now. So, um, but but it's it's Phoebe and her unicorn. Yes, it is a comic strip originally. It is now collected into four books. In March, it will be five. Yay! Yeah. So that, for, that's what that's, you've got coming up. We knew there was yeah. something. You know, well, I mean, that's our, one of that's one of the things I've got coming up. I mean, our favorite. Um, our uh, in addition phrase. to there being a fifth book coming out, and uh-huh. uh, there will certainly be a sixth after that because my contract says so, and because <laughs> there's kind of already enough strips to do it. Uh-huh. Uh, we are also in the fall releasing the first Phoebe and her unicorn graphic novel. Um, they sort of all get classified as graphic novels, but you know, they're collections of comic strips. This is the first one that I've written as a graphic novel. And it's called Phoebe and her Unicorn and the Magic Storm, and it is exciting. It's just a new thing for Phoebe and Marigold. Well, that's a different kind of storytelling, isn't it? I smell it television special. Oh, there's a potential for that. But this is this well, is the first long form work that you've you've written. I mean, you have a, a a story thread that goes through Phoebe and her Unicorn, but this is the first time you've tackled uh, a long form story for this. Or is it? And one of the one of the rules. With a comic strip, you know, it's like it's like a sitcom. You have to be really mindful of changing anything. Mm-hmm. So the stories can't have like you know, if I did a storyline where Phoebe gets glasses or Marigold perms her mane or something, then I have to draw them that way for the foreseeable future. And if you know, characters can't die, major character relationships can't change unless you're really serious about it and it's like a world changing event that you can allow yourself every once in a blue moon 
not that anybody's going to be dying or, or you know, Thank any you. major character relationships will be changing in the graphic novel either, but my point is more can happen, you know? The stories can be a little mm-hmm. more complicated. Characters can go through more things. I'm excited about this. Well, because Phoebe's a growing girl and, you know, change change is the name of the game. Yeah, and I'm. it's not an accident that I'm, I like to write about, you know, both in Phoebe and in Ozzy and Millie, the comic I used to do, the protagonists around nine, ten years old, because it's like such a transitional phase of life where the world is just coming into focus. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity to have a, a real character arc as well. I mean, it's 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 harder to do that in four panels. Yeah, and without giving too much away, there is at least one new character that's in the graphic novel who I will have more time and space to sort of introduce to the audience via a much more complicated story than I ever usually tell. And that is, it's a different kind of introduction. It allows me to introduce different kinds of characters. Can't mm. wait to meet him. Uh, or her. Or her. Or it. We don't know. It could be Or idiot. whatever pronouns it prefers. Mm. Yeah, it, it could be uh, it could be a warthog. Be Zer, it could be Zebork, <laughs> it could be yeah, it could be any of those things, and uh, <laughs> I would just have to figure out how to spell them. <laughs> the three is silent. <laughs> so, how did you get started with uh, the the first the first comic you did was? Well, the one we know about is Ozzy and Millie. Yes. Was there anything yeah. before that? Ozzy and Millie is not, strictly speaking, the first comic strip I ever did. The first comic strip I ever did, and I feel certain I must have brought this up last time because I always bring this up, but I was five, and it was called Boo, and it was about ghosts. I love that. And when I speak at elementary schools, I always show this to them. This is my first comic strip. This is when I was five. You could do better than this. I, and... Um, I still have that. My mom saved everything. Ozzy and Millie was the first thing I did that, like, wasn't drawn in Crayola markers. And I was much older. I was, like, 19 when I started doing Ozzy and Millie. And I did it online for 10 years. I wanted to syndicate it. That never worked out. But as a result, I ended up doing a fairly popular web strip for a long time. I know. I used to read that. I, I was I was gabberflasted when I heard that that was you. <laughs> yeah, you're not the only person I've gotten that reaction from. People, my drawing styles changed a lot, for one thing, and a lot of people just sort of lost track of me after Ozzy and Millie, and then Phoebe comes along and they notice that, and they're like, "What you did both of those?" It's fun. It's fun watching people put that together. Well, and that's that's uh, that's what makes an artist. You know, well, I mean, yeah, you can grow as an artist. You do different things. Actors do different things all the time, and nobody bats an eye. Working in different styles, the ability to do that. Well, yeah, I mean, look at uh, Walt Kelly's first drawing of Pogo. Yeah, Walt Kelly's first drawing of Pogo is really different than how than the Pogo that we all got to know later. And love. But that's sort of like any comic strip. I mean, you look at the first strips of Calvin or the first strips of got Doonesbury's. Dunesbury, the first strips of yeah. Doonesbury look like they were drawn on notebook paper by a 10-year-old. They might have and been. He's been out a long damn time. It, you, the, when you start off a comic strip, um, inevitably the designs are going to evolve as you sort of settle into them. There's kind of no way for that not to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, you get you get comfortable with the line and the 
and comfortable with the character design. And sure. It has a way of simplifying itself. Like Phoebe's hair has a lot fewer lines in it than it does in the really early strips because like as it, as drawing her got to be habitual, it got simpler. So you sort of develop a, a, a kind of visual shorthand for, for some of these things or, or, or at least ha- habits. You do. You, and you kind into. of learn which lines you don't really need from drawing the characters over and over. And I don't know if that necessarily saves time or ink since I work all digitally, but it's appealing when it's simpler. It looks cleaner. And it's easier, uh, easier for the, the, the reader to digest as well. I mean, it's, um, one of the principles of animation is, uh, clean drawing, you know, clean, clean lines and good profiles for the, for the character drawings. We just so came, came, to... came to the mics this afternoon after watching the Lego movie and all the, all <laughs> the, the sharp Lego, angles. Lego, you know? Lego Batman. Batman movie. Lego Batman. Yeah. And it's all, it's all sharp ang- You know, it's fun, but it's all sharp angles. And it's, it's, uh, on the big screen. Highly recommend it, by the way. It's hilarious. Yeah, I haven't seen Lego Batman yet. I loved the first Lego movie, and I loved Batman in it. So I don't know why I haven't gone to see Lego Batman yet. Well, it's, I don't well, it opens. It came out yesterday. It's goofy. It's fun. It's. Oh, did it just come out yesterday? For yeah, some it... reason, I was thinking about it longer than that. I guess because I've been hearing about it forever because everybody was so excited about it. That's... They advertise so far in advance now. You know, by the time it actually hits the theaters, you, everyone's over it. Yeah, that's, I think they've that's overdone the, that. They've, think, they've reached the yeah. point with of no, you know, diminished returns on that. Yeah, I concept. think I I agree with you. I think uh, I think movie advertising has become so saturated because everybody's clamoring for attention, so they just ramp up that fever pitch, and they're expecting everybody to hold that emotional edge for like months until the thing comes out. Speaking of edges, we were talking about her art style. Well, oh, we yeah. were. And we got and into oh, animation and then from there to Legos, which is a very natural <laughs> <laughs> direction for the conversation to take. Well, uh, but, uh, yeah. Um, speaking of animation, I don't. I can't go into too much detail about this, but there are negotiations underway that might lead to an animated Phoebe and a unicorn show getting made eventually. All the fingers in the room are being crossed, and it's yeah, very yeah. hard to... Me, minor, I, I, every body part of mine that I can cross with another one has been crossed. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> it's, that would be fantastic, and it would, it would lend itself so well to it. I, I, I assume we're talking 2D animation. Yeah. Well, I assume. Nobody has actually specified that, but I just sort of assume. Hmm. We're talking television, not movies. It could be... Whatever it is television means in 2017. Yeah, it could could easily be 3D, though. I mean, they did it with the Peanuts movie, didn't they? That's true. And Hmm. that would be really cool to see. I always... From the beginning, with Phoebe and Marigold, part of my mind is sort of like, what would it be like if there was like the, the Pixar-style Phoebe and her unicorn movie, and what would that look like? And, you know, I can totally imagine it. That would be awesome. I would say yes to that. And um, I can't help but wonder if the graphic novel that you're working on isn't contributing in some way to the possibility uh, of this animated uh, animated uh, special for television or series? Um, series. 
Oh, a series. Yeah, which could oh my goodness. possibly be very good. I, I hope so. It would be totally different, and I've been, I have been thinking about this a lot since that started to seem like it was actually a legit possibility. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about the fact that it means relinquishing a lot of control. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Like, one of the reasons I got into doing comics was that I like being able to make all the decisions myself. I decide what the characters look like, what they say, what they do with their mouths and hands. And mm-hmm. God, that sounded filthy. I just meant gesturing. <laughs> but, yeah, we know what you meant. <laughs> yeah, no. You get to do um, all the directing, all the. Oh, convincing. there goes our PG rating. Oh, stop. Yeah, there goes my career as a children's author. I said that on a podcast. But yeah, I I mean, the point is, I'm a bit of a control freak. And doing a TV series inevitably means putting a lot of that into, you know, giving other people a lot of those jobs. You're giving your baby away. Well, you know, if you're not Sparky Schultz or J.K. Rowling or somebody with that kind of 500-pound gorilla, you know, influence, yeah, it does. Well... In a sense, you're you're you still have that control, but you're it's going to be one step removed. You're going to be giving them sort of a bible as to how these characters are supposed to look, and yeah. uh, how they're supposed to sound, and and what they're supposed to do. And, and, and when the if, when the just possible, I want to do the show bible myself. Yeah, because if nothing else, that allows me to pick the starting point. Mm-hmm. And then things will evolve from there, not necessarily in ways that I choose. And I'm I'm aware of that. I'm actually kind of curious to see what somebody else, a collective of people, like mm-hmm. the larger group that inevitably has to work on an animated show. The Bagdasarian, the uh, the, the, um, the chipmunk the movies. Yeah, the the son of of I Ross, Ross Bagdasarian. Ross Bagdasarian. Uh, uh, when he came to Rhythm and Hughes about, uh, I guess it was eight years ago now, to do the first one, um, they brought us all into the studio and, and we sat through an entire afternoon of, of indoctrination as to what the character's history was and what their hopes and dreams were and, <laughs> and the psychology of them. And then we got into the look and feel and how that had progressed wow. over the years and the whole thing. But they really it's, kept uh, an iron hand on the, on the uh, intellectual property, didn't they? Well, but then after that, once that was done, uh, once they had, uh, once Mr. Bagdasarian was sure that we had a good handle on what his characters were about, he let us go, and we did it. And I, I think that's probably going to be a similar situation with you. They can't make the show about your characters unless they fully understand them first, and you are going to be the wellspring for that. I don't know if it will actually happen. I mean, signs are good now, but you know Hollywood. Lots of projects oh, get yeah. a bit of ways into whatever the process is and then eventually nothing gets made for whatever reason and I'm trying not to get my hopes up too high but that's really hard well so many people get involved in projects and then uh, uh, somebody else waves a bigger paycheck in front of them and they have to go off in that other direction 
But I think this sub project has so much appeal. It just it really mirrors the inner life of a nine year old girl. You've, you've oh, so you. captured it. That is one of the greatest compliments that I get is that Phoebe seems real. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that she does. I mean, she's I put a lot of myself into Phoebe. A lot of, you know, the part of me that's still nine years old goes into Phoebe. Do you spend a lot of time uh, working out your, your storylines? I mean, you have story arcs uh, across so yeah, several weeks tend, of work. They tend to be one to two weeks. For a long time, I was really not allowed to go over one. But now this, this strip's been in newspapers for a couple of years. They're kind of letting me go longer. The idea is that if you if the storyline's too long, you want people to be able to pick up a newspaper and step in at any mm-hmm. point. And that's harder to do with long, complicated stories. So they tend to be one to two weeks, which is which can be limiting, which is one reason the graphic novel is fun. Mm-hmm. But we do sit down. I, I Skype with my editor once a week, and we talk about storylines. We talk about what ideas I have and how those can be made into storylines and what should happen and what Phoebe and Marigold should be thinking and saying. And it really helps to have a second person. Like, when I was a web cartoonist, I would bounce ideas off various people in my life, but there was, like, no other person who was devoted to helping do it. And having an editor really improves my writing, I think. Having another person to go back and forth with before we construct every week's strips. You are certainly not the first writer to say that. That's uh, That seems to be uh, a common thing that writers uh, that we speak with on a regular basis all say is that their editor makes their work better and it makes them easier for them. It helps that I have a very good editor. Her name is Sheena and she's awesome. Thank you, Sheena. Thank you, Sheena. What a, <laughs> what a great uh, what a great name for an editor. I mean, I just figured, you know, you know, I see this. I have this mental. Are you going to mess with someone named Sheena? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, Sheena Wolf. She's That's dressed right. in leopard skin. Even better. Comes swinging in. With oh come on! That now that's. That's not a real name. <laughs> that's a that's an adventurous in the next in your next comic. Come on, I know this. <laughs> she is and a comics nuts. editor who I think she's vice president of something at Andrews McNeil and lives in Kansas City. I pre, I assume she lives in Kansas City. I, I assume that because their building is there. I actually don't know. And a fantasy heroine on weekends. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that's true. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. So, um, how far in advance do you do you do the strips for syndication? What's I would like to be further ahead than I am. Like, um, it, the general rule is it's like two and a half weeks ahead on the dailies. Does that make sense? Two and a half. It, it seems like it's about between two and three. So about twenty days. Yeah, something like that. And and uh, it's longer on the Sundays. It's like seven weeks on Sundays. And right now, I'm honestly, I'm exactly that far ahead on both of them, which is not, or actually, no, I'm a little further ahead than that on dailies right now. But it's hard because I'm also trying to write a graphic novel. So um, getting a big backlog of strips up has not been the easiest thing. But I've been keeping up. I'm proud of that. 
Yeah, I was going to say, that's got to be quite a challenge. You know, I mean, it's a challenge just doing that uh, doing that day in and day out to start with. But oh, and I when I think about uh, what if a TV show gets greenlit, part of me is like, yay, and another part of me is like, more work? <laughs> yes, the reward for doing work well is more work. Yes, no, nothing gets work piled on you like success. <laughs> Speaking of success, you've uh, won a few. You've won quite a few awards with PBN or Unicorn, haven't you? I have won a few. Um, I won a, the first book won a Washington State Book Award, and the second book won a Pacific Northwest Book Award. Both of those were before I moved to Southern California. And uh, what else have I won? I'm actually, I think I've just won those two awards. Well, we got to start submitting them down here then. Yeah, well, I'm I'm actually I'm speaking at an indie publisher conference in a, in uh, in Pomona in a couple of weeks. Oh, wow! And I'm hoping that much like when I spoke to the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association, I, I think that was what ended up with them giving me their award is that I spoke at their thing and <laughs> sort sort of got their attention. And maybe this will do something. Maybe maybe I'll get an award for this. Well, well, I don't, also know. Had, I don't know uh, how awards work. You've also had several other speaking engagements. You've been visiting schools uh, all over the country and in Canada, from what I understand? Um, well, all up and down the West Coast. Oh, all right. That's, um, a, that's a lot of traveling while you're trying to Technically international right. because I've been to Canada. But I I don't know. There are states I refuse to go to, and we don't need to go too far into that. But I, and also I just... I occasionally am willing to travel far to do something, but I have a strip to keep up with. I can't be flying back and forth across the country all the time. Yeah, I was going to say that that's an incredible schedule to keep up while you're trying to draw and write. Well, basically, it's not that I'm like constantly doing those things. I do them in bursts. Like mm-hmm. when the when the fourth book, which is called Razzle Dazzle Unicorn, came out in September. Shortly after that, I went on a basically a three week book tour up and down the coast and I had stuff in you know Seattle and Portland and the Bay Area and LA area and for three weeks I was doing that and then I haven't done anything like that since then and I'll probably do it again when the next book comes out did you have any particularly memorable encounters with any school children like any come up to you and just Too say something many to, to describe <laughs> kids are amazing I love I've never had a bad audience of elementary school kids. Middle school kids can be a little difficult. But whenever I have elementary school kids, which is mostly who I was talking to on the tour, they are nothing but great. And they're so welcoming. There was a school in San Jose where they introduced me with by a skit that they did um, where there was a girl dressed as Phoebe and then there was a life-size, like, standee of Marigold that the kids had made. And I oh swear... God, that she was is so, adorable. She was so on model, I couldn't have done it better. Wow. They have very talented children. It was copied from a drawing I recognized from one of the strips, but they did it perfectly. Wow. And so uh, they did this skit, and they reenacted the first storyline from the first Phoebe in her unicorn book where Phoebe skips her arc across a pond and she hits Marigold in the nose, thus liberating her from staring at her own reflection, which she was stuck doing. And Marigold grants Phoebe a wish. And 
in the story, you know, Phoebe wishes for Marigold to be her best friend. But in the skit they did, they had Phoebe say, I wish that our creator, Dana Simpson, could be here right now. Oh. Oh. At which point I was brought up to the stage by four little girls wearing unicorn PJs uh, to the sound of the instrumental version of the My Little Pony theme. This story just gets more and more adorable as it goes on. This is is so so sweet. I am like goosebumps. I I have done some great schools. Honestly, these kids gave me the best introduction that I will ever get. That was, what a great story. I feel if I won an Oscar, it wouldn't be as, that my introduction wouldn't be as great as that. Wow. So when you started first started drawing uh, Phoebe and her unicorn, what, it was called... It was called Heavenly else. Nostrils. Heavenly Nostrils. Which is uh, the Marigold's middle name, you see. Right. Uh, Marigold's name. full name is Marigold Heavenly Nostrils. Yeah. And the reason for that is that I got that name typing my name into an online unicorn name generator. <laughs> Every part of her of is heavenly and perfect. And when you're lo- a unicorn looking down at the water, that's kind of what you see. <laughs> it seemed like fate when that was the name it returned to me. At the time <laughs> I was trying to name my unicorn character, and I'm kind of, I don't know, I, maybe I'm bad at naming characters, or maybe she was just hard, but taking up, coming up with a name for a unicorn is not something to take lightly. But this unicorn name generator spat that back out when I typed my name into it. It actually gave me Marigold's Celestial Nostrils. <laughs> I changed Celestial to Heavenly so as not to invite a comparison to Princess Celestia from My Little Pony. Mm, yeah, that's oh, a good right. Point. Uh-huh. That was the first name uh, under which I encountered the strip. And yeah. Heavenly Nostrils, yes. Yeah. And, and, it, and it changed to Phoebe and her unicorn uh, at the insistence of your publisher, as I remember. They're just un- unfeeling about u- nostrils, I think. It changed to Phoebe and her unicorn for the newspaper launch, which Ah. was, it it feels longer, but it was actually only two years ago. Mm -hmm. Strip will be five in April, but the first three years were online only. So Phoebe and her unicorn has really sort of transformed your life. My life is pretty different. Um, I live in Santa Barbara now instead of Seattle, but that's... Only partially why. My husband got a job down here. Mm-hmm. He works for UC Santa Barbara now. And so, uh, well, fortunately, Santa Barbara is kind of an expensive place to live. And since I get book royalty checks now, we're in a little better position. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So, did, um, was Heavenly Nostrils the, uh, uh, the turning point, you know, when when things started really picking up and really it getting really, going? It really, it came at a, at a really a necessary moment in my life. I was, <laughs> I needed something answer. big to happen. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to be a syndicated comic strip artist since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And I would, little kid reading Calvin and Hobbes and Peanuts and Garfield and, yeah, um, I loved Bloom County. I didn't understand Bloom County, but I loved it. And I, I feel differently about it now because Berkeley Breathe had just beat me for a Harvey Award. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think there's a, certainly a level of comprehension <laughs> that you didn't have when you were, you know. Indeed. But it was really interesting because I'd learn a lot because I'd be like, oh, they're making fun of Al Gore. Mom, who's that? And then I would know. But I wanted to be syndicated since I was that 
young, since I was in elementary school, and I had been trying since I was 19 or 20, and I started sending Ozzy and Millie off to the, I think there were seven syndicates at the time. Every few months, I'd get together my best strips, package them as neatly as I could, try and get the attention of syndicates, and I would always get back rejection letters. I still have a bunch of them. A lot of them just weren't interested in funny animal comics. There was a sense that funny animal comics didn't sell particularly. Um, I got from at least one editor, I got a sort of, obviously you're talented, but this isn't the strip, try something else kind of response. And I, he was right, I guess, ultimately, but I ignored him at the time. But after years of that, it pretty much became clear that that wasn't going to happen. And, you know, trying to get in a newspaper syndication, it sort of seemed more and more like that was like trying to get onto the Titanic. Hmm. Yeah, really, whether the future of the newspaper, right? Yeah, exactly. And as as there were becoming fewer and fewer newspapers, like in the heyday of comic strips, people would there'd be like two papers in every big city or at least, and you'd buy the paper that had your favorite strip. Mm-hmm. Pogo never had that big an audience, but its entire audience would choose their newspaper based on which one had Pogo, so it was still economically a good idea to have it. And th- that kind of incentive doesn't exist. Every city has one big paper at most. There's just so many fewer newspapers. And, and those few are all owned by the same people. Yeah, and it's just not a great environment for newspaper comics. And it's when I meet people that read the strip in newspapers... They t- they skew older, in mm-hmm. which emphasizes my impression that younger people don't pick up newspapers. Mm-hmm. But I had decided to get out of it, and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life at that point. And I was at the time I was approaching thirty, and I'd been a web cartoonist for all of my twenties, and I thought I might just get syndicated right away. And it seemed like that hadn't worked out, and I needed to start making other plans and. My gosh, 30, that's a grown-up age. What am I going to do with my life? And, and it was around that time I was flirting with becoming a children's book author, but then I won the Comic Strip Superstar Contest on Amazon and won my development contract that produced Heavenly Nostrils and then Phoebe and Her Unicorn. And that was like a bolt from the blue in my life. It was like this dream I'd given up on just sort of bang. It didn't give up on you? I guess not. Not that there wasn't a lot of work forward from that point. I mean, it took me two full years to really develop this strip to the point where we all felt comfortable launching it. And another three before they put it into newspapers. Well, looks like it was all worth it. Everything's great now. <laughs> yeah. It's like when, when it happened, it happened. The first... The first book came out, and that was really the turning point, I think, because um, although it's ha, my cat is swatting at your face on my computer screen. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't realize. So if you that. that's just the cat. <laughs> um, Sophie, what are you doing? She, she's pawing at you. She's very interested. Hello, um, Sophie. That's funny. And and that's the still picture. We're not even broadcasting a picture to you. Yeah, but for some reason she's quite interested. It's 
like the one object in a sea of black on my screen and she's drawn to it. Mm. <laughs> what was I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> when your first book came out. Oh, the first book came out because the truth is I'm somewhat successful as a syndicated comic author. Like I'm in, I think between one and 200 newspapers. I don't know the exact number. It fluctuates. Sometimes it's a little more. Sometimes it goes down. Uh, but it seems to be fairly stationary and like the 150 to 200 range. Which is a good number considering how few newspapers there are. But I'm not in that many big newspapers. I'm in a lot of newspapers, but I'm only in a few like really big newspapers. Like I think the Boston Herald, the Miami Herald, something about papers called Herald. Uh, well, yeah, and, but you get, you get most of your attention and most of your publicity through the books. That, exactly. So the first book came out and it succeeded, I think, beyond my publisher's expectations because they were sold out the first printing and then they like didn't have any for a while. I think they expected the first printing to last longer. And it became a bigger hit, I think, as a book series than it is as a comic strip. It's fine as a comic strip. It's very successful as a book series is, I think, the situation that we have wound up in. That's that's really interesting. I, um, your commentary about uh, uh, the general decline of newspapers and and what a uh, I mean your your timing. Uh, if if you had to wait to be a success, your timing could not have been better. Because I'm not. Do you think? Do you think uh, if it had happened, say, three years later, that you would have been find you found yourself in the same position you are now? It's really hard to imagine. I mean, it sort of seems like so many things had to go right that if you push it three years in either direction, maybe it would have been completely different. Because of the circumstances in the industry, but also because of where I was in my own life, it, was, it all kind of came together, and it was the stars just lined up for me, finally, after years and years of trying to figure out how to get that to happen. So what else, um, what other, have you had been working on other ideas, uh, other new possible stories or uh, characters? You mean involving in the Phoebe universe or outside of it? Beyond. Oh, uh, beyond that. I am working on, uh, kind of in the background, a memoir project that's more like autobiographical. Um, because although I never know what percentage of people know about this, I'm a transgender woman. And I have, for years, intended to write a story about, well, like a graphic novel story about that. And one day, I accidentally pitched it to my publisher, and they said yes. <laughs> oh. like, How do you accidentally pitch something? I was at lunch <laughs> with, uh, there I was was. A lunch with a few of the, like, executives from Andrews McNeil, they were in town, they bought me lunch in Seattle, and I mentioned that I was, that I'd always planned to do that, and they were like, oh, you should do that, we'd publish that. And I was like, oh. Oh, oops. I, I guess now I, I have to do it. <laughs> I'm just talking about it. I, I think now would be the time for that. I think it'd be very important. I like to think that it could, you know, to if it helps not, one not, more. Not to go to a cliche, but I think it could make a difference. If it makes a difference to one kid. 
Yeah. Yeah. Who has the inner life of a girl. It was super confusing for me growing up in a world where that wasn't really as acknowledged as it is now. And who knew it would ever get acknowledged? Anything that I can contribute to some kid not feeling like if they tell people who they really are, they'll be branded a freak forever, which was my fear. If if I can convince some kid that you can be you and still succeed, then I want to. It's, um, I, I agree. I think it's the timing possibly could not be better for that. I think it would be a marvelous project. I have begun working on it, but it's a little bit on the back burner. I, and I'm under contract to write it. They've got it on the schedule for 2018. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd probably be working harder on that if I had any time to. Yeah. Yes, well. it's, it's a little bit on the back burner right now because I have to get the Phoebe graphic novel out and also keep up on the strip. And that does really limit the time I have for other stuff. Well, slow and steady. You'll you'll get there. It will happen because it's important. Although I might have, yeah. to, have to start refusing to take on anything new for a while. Well, stick by your guns. Well, thank you. It uh, seems as though a lot of things that were meant to happen for you have happened. and uh... It's a little bit hard not to believe in fate when things keep happening at the right time. Well, I don't want to sound like a braggart or anything, but there were (laughs) some of us who had an inkling from the very beginning. Yes, thank you, Gabe. You (laughs) never stopped believing in me. Why? Who could stop believing in a unicorn? Exactly. There's magic in the world. The world needs to be reminded that we exist sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's important. You know, people, you have to have your dreams. Otherwise, what's the point of living? We need our magic now more than ever. That's how I always felt about it. You know, I'm I'm encountering this weird phenomenon now, though, where it's like everything that I was daydreaming about, you know, successfully transitioned. I dreamed for a long time about living in Southern California, and I'm here now, and I dreamed about being a successful cartoonist, and that has worked out, and now it's like I'm running out of things to daydream about, and I'm trying to make this transition to just being happy that things have gone well. It must what be. a concept. <laughs> Seems to be a common thing. What's that like? Yeah, that's... that's wow. <laughs> I, I don't have anything more to say. It's th- a happily ever after. Yeah. For now. For As now. Orson Welles once said, happy endings depend entirely on when you stop your story. And as Peter S. Beagle once said, there are no happy endings for nothing truly ends. Ah, Peter S. Beagle. I have not seen Peter in a while. I did not know that you knew him. How? Yeah, I'm sure I, they would have been put together by convention, speaker bureaus, any <laughs> at every opportunity. Actually, Peter and I originally established contact on Twitter. Hmm. Uh, four years ago now, early 2013, um, one day I tweeted, without at Peter S. Beagle, there would have been no Marigold Heavenly Nostrils. And at Peter S. Beagle tweeted back to me, and I kind of 
fainted and then <laughs> sort of had, had an exchange and, and I figured out quickly that the person tweeting isn't Peter. He doesn't run his own Twitter account. It's mm-hmm. a lady named Chris that he owns a bookstore with in Pittsburgh. Okay. And I was wondering who she, he was working with. She was yeah. like, I'm showing Peter your work. And then she was like, Peter sees your work and he thinks it's great. And uh, then I got a letter from his then manager asking me if I would like for him to write the introduction to my first book. Ooh. I had I had been saying I had been going around saying that my if I was going to get book introductions, my two dream choices were Peter S. Beagle and Lauren Faust. Yet books. another dream that came true. <laughs> books one and two. Yeah. There we are. My gosh. So, um, but then Peter invited me or Peter's manager at the time, rather, invited me to the kickoff of the last Unicorn screening tour, which was about to embark at the time. They had a new digital print of the movie, The Last Unicorn, and they were taking it to different cities, and Peter was going to be there signing autographs and like answering questions. And they invited me to come to the kickoff and sit next to Peter and sign things. And I get to sign that many autographs that day because nobody knew who I was yet in 2013. Like, the few people who did came, and that was fun, but just sitting next to this legendary writer and watching him interact with kids and getting to talk to him... I'm sure it was a great honor for him. (laughs) He he wrote that to me on the thing I had him sign that day because he is a wonderful person. And I ended up appearing with him on a bunch of the shows on the tour, uh, my reason for being there got a lot more compelling after the first book came out, and they actually sold it on the tour for a while. Mm, great. If you like that, this, you like that. And Peter is an amazing person to sit next to. He speaks very, very quietly and has tons of stories. And you sort of picture Peter as Beagle. You're probably right. You know, he's, oh, well, he's well, we've been to uh, his speeches at various times. Fantastic! Then you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes, always marvelous. Yeah, I actually uh, when he when they had the showing here in L.A., I went to it and I actually brought my copy of Heavenly Nostrils, uh, Phoebe and her Unicorn Chronicle, for him to sign. Got my cool. picture taken with him, and uh, and I found out later that he always seems to have that expression on his face that says, "Are we done here?" <laughs> yeah. Well, as long as of, that's typical and it's not just you, it's all right. <laughs> that kind of slight smirk, that's Peter's permanent expression. <laughs> that's interesting. We should call him for this show sometime. So not maybe, a bad idea. You could get him to do it. He would be fantastic to have on a podcast, I'm sure. That would be that would be a lot of fun. The book that is coming out in March is called Razzle Unicorn Dazzle. Crossing. Unicorn Crossing. Th- that was the previous oh, one. Sorry, Razzle sorry. Dazzle. Ah. Razzle Dazzle was book four. Now Unicorn I Crossing, sing, which is I do March 28th, I think, is book five. And uh, that's going to be available everywhere books are sold, I guess. Yeah. That it will be available at whatever bookstore you prefer. I'm going to pre-order my copy. Yeah, I was about to say, could, do we have, you know, should we get on board and help boost your Amazon score now, or do we wait? We're team players here. I'm not going to say I don't obsessively check my Amazon sales rankings, because I do. <laughs> uh-huh. But at the same time, I feel like I should 
make an appeal on behalf of indie bookstores that they would love your business and they need it more than Amazon does. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's, it has been a wonderful uh, discussion with you. And it's we're been so, wonderful being here. We have been talking to Dana Simpson, the Thank creator so of Heavenly Nostrils, now known as Phoebe and her unicorn. It has been a real pleasure having you with us. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you later. All right. Good night. Good night. Unicorn! Unicorn! <laughs> okay, I'm, isolate that. We need yes, that no. as an interstitial. You have been to episode 160 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for February 11th, 2017. Our guest this evening has been Dana Simpson, the award-winning creator of the popular syndicated comic strip Phoebe and Her Unicorn, first introduced to the world as a webcomic called Heavenly Nostrils. Your hosts have been Susan Fox, Gabriel Gentile, and Gene Turnbow. This episode will air again tomorrow at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Yes, we will be changing these airtimes so that you can catch the show at more reasonable hours, and we promise that we will announce that change sometime in the coming week. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Krypton Radio is nerd-supported geek culture radio, and while we do get a little of our money from advertising, the vast majority of it comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy hearing the Event Horizon each week, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and agree to contribute $5 a month. It will help keep your favorite radio station and shows like this one on the air and thriving. If you are an artist, writer, actor, or other creator and you would like to appear as a guest on the Event Horizon, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2017 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>